All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 38 through 40. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible there. So Mark, chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Uh, For those visiting, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible the majority of the time. Um, And this morning, in Mark's Gospel, we will be considering the subject of hypocritical religion. Some of your heads just perked up a little bit. Yeah, hypocritical religion. Brothers and sisters, hypocrisy is real. And it can be especially real when it comes to religion. Let me define hypocrisy real quick. Um, Pretending. Acting. uh, Pretending you are one thing when in reality you are another. To be a hypocrite is to put on a show that makes you look one way when you are actually something else altogether. Our text deals with religious hypocrisy. That is, it deals with acting religious, uh, putting on airs, pretending, making yourself appear holier than you are in order to be praised by others. Religious hypocrisy exists when there is no real love for God or neighbor. There is no true faith in God and his gospel, no true religion, according to the scriptures, but an outward show of it still exists. Now, we've all seen this, and I think most of us would agree religious hypocrisy is one of the most detestable things that we've ever witnessed. Some of us grew up in homes where there were religious hypocrites, and it turned us away in some regards from the faith. All men are still responsible, by the way, for not embracing the gospel. There will be no excuse in the judgment, but nevertheless, there can be certain factors. Some of us have seen this. Some of us have done this. I know I did this for a long time growing up. I wasn't converted until I was 19, but I was quite religious. Some of us have done this. Maybe some of us here are currently doing this. I don't have any reason to suspect that, but I can't see the hearts of everyone in here. Maybe some of us are currently doing this. And our text this morning reveals that the Lord Jesus Christ hates hypocrisy. And such hypocrisy will be judged and condemned on the last day. Jesus hates hypocrisy. Yes, contrary to what our our culture likes to tell you about Jesus, they have this hippie version of Jesus. Jesus hates things. He does because he's righteous and he's holy. Jesus hates things and he hates hypocrisy. And he hates it so much that he warns us about it. He hates hypocrisy so much and also loves his people so much that he tells us to keep away from it. And he gives us examples of it so that we might steer clear of it. This text this morning has to do with our heart motivations for the things that we do. What motivates us to do religious works? What motivates us to do good for others? Why do we do the things we do? Ask yourself throughout this sermon that question, because I'll be posing it later. Why do you do the things you do? And remember this, God is after your heart, not just your actions. And if he gets your heart, he gets both. But he's after your heart. Now, a brief note before I begin. This sermon is for everyone. It was written down and recorded for the instruction of the church, that is, the people of God in general. But I think that it is especially applicable to those of us who are in the ministry. This text I'm about to preach is especially for church officers, that is, elders and deacons, and those who aspire to the offices of the church. And it's also especially relevant for lay leaders. What are lay leaders? Uh, Sunday school teachers, 
small group leaders, nursery workers, people who do ministry within the church but aren't an official officer. This text is for everyone, but it is especially for people who do public ministry. So pay attention. Now with that said, for introduction, if you would now and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, that is Jesus' teaching, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you now seeking grace in time of need. We have need. We need to understand your word. But we are too dull, too fallible, too creaturely, too earthly to understand and believe and apply what your word says on our own. And so we ask that you, by your spirit, would grant to us the grace necessary to receive the word of God with faith. Work in us this morning, please. Bless us, guide us, instruct us, grant us repentance, grant us faith, and grant us reformation of life according to the word. Glorify yourself in us so that you might be praised. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So let's go ahead and dive in. Verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes. So Jesus has been speaking with the scribes. He's just posed a question to them in verses 35 through 37 concerning the Messiah. The scribes have been part of the group who has been opposing and questioning Jesus this entire day. Remember, this is Tuesday of Passion Week still. It's a very long day. Uh, They have opposed him. These scribes have opposed Jesus throughout his entire ministry. And they have sought to discredit and have him killed at every turn. And now Jesus is going to give us a word about the scribes and their standing with God. He begins by saying, beware, that is, look at them. That's actually the word here in Greek is look. Look at them. Watch out for them. See them and be warned. Why? Look at the end of verse 40. They will receive the greater condemnation. That's why. Beware of the scribes. Why? Because they're going to be condemned. Now, who's going to do the condemning? God. God will. God is the judge of all the earth. All men will have to stand before the bar of God and be judged for what they've done. God is the one who's going to judge. And Jesus tells us what the result will be for the scribes. Greater condemnation. That is greater punishment. If you're familiar with the King James Version, it says greater damnation. Their punishment for eternity will be more severe than the punishment of others. But why will they receive the greater condemnation? Well, in time, the rest of the text will tell us. So we're going to push on. But know this, Jesus' words here begin with a warning. Beware of the scribes. He's warning us. Listen, he loves so much that he warns. And just briefly, this isn't in my notes. He's actually not only warning us, but in a sense, he's warning the scribes who heard him. Beware of the scribes. 
Jesus isn't just taking shots at the scribes here. He's giving a gracious warning so that sinners might repent and so that his people might be preserved. He's warning, don't be like them. Beware of their example. Beware of their religion. Beware of what they do. Keep away from the way they live. Why? Because if you do as they do and become as they are, you will be damned. Now, the entirety of Matthew chapter 23 is actually the parallel passage for our text in Mark. Now, some of you remember uh, Matthew 23 is the seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, Matthew's gospel is much longer at this point than Mark's is, um, and, and it contains a much stronger denunciation of the scribes. I recommend you read Matthew 23 today when you get home. It is a most severe judgment passage. It's one that will make you stop and say, that's Jesus? Like Jesus spoke this way? And Matthew 23 helps us, or rather helps to inform our understanding of what Mark says here in just three verses. Matthew covers an entire chapter. But in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. Ever wondered where you get that? Practice what you preach, bud. You've heard that? That's from Jesus. They preach, but they do not practice. So do what they say, but don't do as they do. Jesus tells the crowds and his disciples, listen to the scribes inasmuch as they are biblically correct. Right? Remember, Jesus opposed all of their man-made traditions. So inasmuch as they're biblically accurate, do what they say. But even though you must listen to them, you must not imitate them. Why? Because they're hypocrites. Because they're hypocrites. Jesus says, again, verse 38, Beware of the scribes who like. We're going to stop there. Who like. We need to see something here. That word like. This sounds like duh, but hear me. What Jesus says, or rather what Jesus is about to say the scribes do, is what they like. It's what they like. The King James Version says love. More literally, the Greek means take pleasure in. They take pleasure in this. So the things Jesus is about to list about the scribes are things that they take their pleasure in. They are things that we, again, the King James, I think, does it really well. To speak modernly, you would say, they love this stuff, right? We say it whenever people take pleasure in it. They love it. These are the things that the scribes want. These are the things that the scribes desire. They are the things that they are chasing after in life. These things that are about to follow are the things that they are pursuing and consumed with getting. And just to prime uh, you for them, you should know that they all have to do with themselves. Everything we're about to look at, the scribes were self-consumed. The things that the scribes love are things that puff up their egos, make them look good, benefit them in some earthly way, and increase their own sense of self-righteousness and self-intoxication. There's a good word maybe to describe the scribes. They were self-intoxicated men. They're drunk on themselves. So now we turn to consider what the scribes love. We turn now to consider their outward appearance. Verse 38, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces 
and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now listen, even if you don't know a single thing about the historical context of what Jesus said, and we're going to get into that in a minute, even if you don't understand any of that, you already understand this much just by reading those four things. These men want to be seen. They love greetings. They like to dress a certain way. They love the best seats in, in feasts and synagogues, right? They want everyone to revere and respect them. And that's because they want everyone to think that they're holy. They want everyone to hold them in high regard. They, they want to be well thought of, praised, and patted on the back by men. So let's just go down the list then and see what we learn. There, there are four things that Jesus mentions here. First, the scribes love to walk around in long robes. And you say, what's wrong with that? Now, these long robes were most likely full-length prayer shawls. Right? Some Jews today, the very conservative ones, they'll wear a prayer shawl underneath their clothing. Right? These were most likely full-length prayer shawls, much larger than necessary. Right? They would have reached nearly to the ground, and they are, they're completely white. They were completely white, with the exception of the blue cord on the tassels on the corners of the garment. If you guys are doing your Bible reading plans, you've probably read the book of Numbers already. Numbers 15, on the corners of every garment, there had to be, a ta there had to be tassels with a blue cord to, re to remind them to keep the law of God. So all white except for blue cords on the, on the uh, corners of their garment. But in Matthew 23, Jesus tells us that the scribes enlarged these tassels so that they were more prominently seen. You say, what's the problem with that? Well, it's as if they were trying to, quote, go above what the law required. God said we just need to have tassels with blue cords on them, but we have very large ones. Right? We're going above and beyond what God said. These long white robes with oversized blue tassels were worn so as to be a mark of their piety and scholarship as masters of the Old Testament law. You say, again, this kind of doesn't, makes sense to us yet, but know this. Most Jews of the day wore very colorful clothing. You starting to see the picture forming here? Most Jews wore very colorful clothing. And so the scribes' clothing would have marked them out immediately as scribes. Right? You, you would have been able to pick a scribe out of the crowd without trying. Who's the guy wearing all white down to the ground? There's the scribe. Does this sound kind of familiar? How many uh, Christian denominations or so-called Christian denominations have their ministers or priests wear a collar or a cassock or a silly hat and a staff? Some of you are giggling. You get what I'm getting at, right? You've seen these things. That's a bishop, right? Like You can just look. There's a bishop in the Roman church. There's a priest in the Roman church. They need to pay attention to this text. These men loved to wear these robes, and that's because they loved to stand out in a crowd. They wanted to be known as scribes. They didn't just want to be scribes and be able to teach and help people. They wanted to be recognized for it. They wanted to be immediately recognized as above the ordinary citizenry of Israel. And their long robes drew attention to them and shouted, This is a holy man in your presence. Second thing Jesus says, and they loved greetings in the marketplaces. Everyone likes to have someone say hi to them, right? But this is actually a reference to their titles that they were known by, right? That, the, that's the greeting Jesus has in mind. You can read about this in Matthew 23. Scribes were often called rabbi, which means it's kind of a packed term. Master, teacher, father, metaphorically, 
or my Lord, someone who's superior to me. They received titles of superiority, and they loved to be known by these titles, kind of like how some people with doctorates refuse to go by their first name. Right? They want to be called doctor, and it's pompous and pretentious. Right, Dr. Knox? It's just a joke. It's Bob. It's Brother Bob, Deacon Bob. Bob's one of the least pretentious men I've ever met. That was a joke. But these titles, Rabbi, Right, they, they stroke the ego of these self-centered, self-righteous, and self-important men. And these titles were signs of their religious status and superiority. These are the greetings that you give to holy men. You don't just call anybody rabbi. And they loved to receive these titles in public. It wasn't a title that they reluctantly received because people uh, wanted to honor them. It wasn't like that. They loved this. Is what Jesus says. They love getting called this in marketplaces. Now, the marketplace was the social center of a city. Tons of people were there all the time. Right? And it was actually, check this out. Here's, here's something from Jewish uh, religious records we know. It was actually expected for all before whom the scribe passed by to stand up and acknowledge them in some kind of a public way. The only exception was for men who were involved in labor. If a scribe walked up in front of you, you stood up and you greeted them. That was, part of, that was part of their culture. Considering what Jesus tells us here about how they loved this, I imagine that the scribes made a big deal about this. And in all likelihood, this wasn't just kind of ex- expected, but it was demanded. Probably kind of like in the military, I would assume. If you don't greet someone the proper way, they're, they're going to let you know that you didn't greet them properly. Nathan's nodding his head. He's saying, yep. <laughs> I imagine in their culture, if you didn't do it, you would receive some kind of social mark against you because the scribe was going to make a big deal out of it. But just imagine for a moment how much recognition you would get from hundreds or even thousands of people as you walked through the marketplace of Jerusalem. These men loved titles, and they loved public recognition. They thirsted for it. They hungered for it. They loved it. The third thing Jesus says is they loved the best seats in the synagogues. Now, these would be the seats nearest to where the scrolls of the Old Testament scriptures were kept. Um, they, they would ordinarily be at the front of the building, right? Like kind of where I'm standing would be, pretty, would be where the scrolls are kept somewhere back here on the wall. And, and the, the chairs would be facing the congregation while the assembly actually sat on the floor. And this is where the, the stage, as it were, would be where the holy men would sit so that everyone could see them and think well of them and praise them for their piety and their knowledge of the law of God. We see this in some churches, by the way, right? There'll be men who just sit at the front of the stage and they have nothing to do with the liturgy, right? They're not leading you in anything. It's not, it's not that there's like a deacon sitting back here because he's about to lead in song in about five minutes. Like, he's just sitting there. <laughs> Again, this has crept into the church in many ways. It really has. But again, this is where the holy men would sit. Listen, even when they went to church, it was all about them. Even when the scribes went to synagogue, went to church, it was like it was about them. And you better believe that if you didn't give a scribe this seat near the scrolls, they would be upset and they would no doubt complain to the ruler of the synagogue and the people that they were offended. These men expected to be treated differently than everyone else, even at church. These men did not go to worship the living God. They went to church in order to be seen by others. The fourth thing Jesus mentioned is that they loved the places of honor at feasts. Now, when a person threw a party in their culture, 
when there was a feast, it was almost a status symbol to have a scribe present. Right? The scribe was like an ornament, right? If you could get like a famous person to come to your party, like that party, like right on. Like we do that today. If you can get a well-known person to come, that's, he's almost like an ornament. Same thing for a scribe. And the scribe was always given the best seat at the party, which would be right in the middle of the table next to the host. Again, this is a form of public recognition uh, that they are scribes. These are the holy men. They were given this high status and high social regard because they appeared to be so godly. Now, we don't know anything about that in our culture, right? Because godly people usually don't get invited to the parties. Uh, But in a culture where religion collars everything, the scribes were given pride of place, right? They would have even, they would have been given pride of place above elders, right? The the elderly, um, above their own parents, even above the parents of the host. And remember, they loved this. You need to see that. They loved this. It didn't just happen, right? Because we've seen this at parties, right? Where there's actually a pretty humble guy. And they're like, hey, you get to sit at the head of the table. He's like, ah, I don't really want to. And they say, no, we want to honor you. Please sit here. No, I don't really want to. Please don't make me do that. And the host insists. And then the guy sits down. It's not like that. Jesus says they loved this. It didn't just happen and they accepted it so as not to offend the host. But they wanted this. They sought after this kind of treatment. They lived for this stuff. In summary, I think we can all agree that the scribes loved the praise of men. That's what they were all about. This is what they like. This is what they find their pleasure in. They kept up their religious appearance because they loved the attention and praise that they got for it. You could put it this way. They were lovers of self and not, instead of lovers of God. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, Jesus says something very revealing about them. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Let me read that again. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They're egocentric, self-important men who use religion as a means to further themselves. And there's great irony here, isn't there? What do I mean? As teachers of the law, men who know the Bible, they should have been primarily concerned that God should receive all glory and praise of men. Right? That's what the scriptures point at all the time. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to to your name be glory. They should have been concerned with that. If they were truly holy and godly, they would have deflected attention away from themselves and desired that the people would look at God and glory in him. But their love of praise and position reveals something. It reveals that they do not love God. They love themselves. They are supposedly experts in the word of God, but the word has had no true effect on them. You can put it this way, and what a a convicting thing this is to say. They were unbelievers who knew the book. They were men who kept up appearances with the public for gain. I'm stealing this from somebody. I can't remember who it was. But you could put it this way. These men are glory thieves. They're glory thieves. In seeking glory for themselves, they rob God of his. Again, they look very religious on the outside, but they're doing everything for themselves in order to be recognized and praised by men. So, so we've seen now what they do and love in public, but now let's turn to what they do in private. 
Verse 40, who devour widows' houses. In the Bible, widows and orphans are the class that often represents the lowest of the low, the neediest, the ones who are to be most cared for, loved, and protected by the strong and godly. There are are verses in the Old Testament where God says, if the widows and orphans cry out to me because you don't take care of them, look out, because I'm coming for you. Obviously, it's a paraphrase. But there are texts that essentially say that. If, if they cry out to me because you've oppressed them and have not helped them, it will not go well for you. But Jesus says these men devour widows' houses. Now, what does that mean, devour a widow's house? Well, I got three possibilities here. Some commentators say that at the time, it was not permitted for a teacher of the scriptures to receive an income for teaching. You couldn't get paid for teaching the Old Testament. Instead, they would live off of the hospitality of others. Right? And, and it was considered an extreme act of piety, godliness, and merit before God to financially take care of a scribe. Remember, this is a legalistic, pharisaical system. You need to earn your salvation. That's what they believed. You need to earn your salvation and you need to do all this meritorious stuff before God in order to be accepted by God. And, and to take care of a scribe is extremely pious. And so these scribes must have been making it a practice to use pious widows, who possibly may just be one example of pious poor people, and they would use up or devour all their resources. Or perhaps the scribes, being taken care of by pious households, were given full reign over the estate. They, They were given authority over the estate because surely a holy man can be trusted with your money, right? And inevitably, the scribe would take advantage of and abuse that position and effectively rob the family. Or a third possibility, the scribes may have been estate planners for widows. A woman's husband dies, and they step in and say, let me help you manage your stuff. And while doing that work, again, being trusted because these are the holy men, they would convince the widows to give their money to themselves or to the temple because that's what God would want you to do. Because that would be very pious and meritorious for you to do. And so the scribes benefited monetarily from a grieving widow and effectively robbed her of what her husband had left her to take care of her. Regardless of how exactly this went down, get this. These are cruel men. They don't care about anybody. I I would say this. They're worse than the tax collectors. They do not love their neighbor. They are not trying to love their neighbor but falling short. Rather, they are using people for their own gain. And and by showing such a hatred for their fellow man, they show that they do not love God either. Remember, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' words about the great commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. And how Jesus puts them together. If you hate your neighbor, you do not love God. And if you love God, you will by necessity love your neighbor as well. They don't love God then because they hate their neighbors. They were stealing, harming, and hating. And listen, they were using religion to do it. They were using religion to do it. But even though they're doing that behind the scenes, they sure do keep up an appearance of religion. These men used religion as a means to financial gain. Let me stop here for a moment. What a warning to those men and women who preach the so-called prosperity gospel. 
those TV preachers, hucksters, those social media preachers, you've seen them, the Hillsongs, the Stephen Furtick's, the Elevation Churches, the Joel Osteen's, the Benny Hens, the Joyce Myers, and all the rest, they all fit into this category. They make merchandise of the people of God and they take their money for empty promises and false doctrine. And who are the ones who give them the most money? The old and the poor. God will judge them most severely because they've made merchandise out of his people. These people make me sick and they should make you sick as well. This is wickedness. Back in the day, parents used to always talk about your kids shouldn't watch MTV, but they would turn TBN on. I trust my children in the hands of a godless pagan before I'd trust them in the hands of Benny Hinn. I'm not telling you to let your kids watch whatever they want, by the way. Turn them both off. <laughs> but that's not all the scribes do. They devour widows' houses, but Jesus continues. And this one hurts. And for a pretense, make long prayers. Continuing to look at the interior of their hearts, Jesus mentions their prayers. He says that their prayers are long and are a pretense. Now, pretense is a word that we don't use very much, so here's the definition for pretense. I pulled this out of a dictionary. An attempt to make something that is not the case appear true. Or this, a false display of feelings, attitudes, or intentions. A more common expression that we use is they're putting on an act. That's what a pretense is. They're putting on an act. These men are acting when they make long prayers. They are actors. And here's your fun fact for the morning. The Greek word for actor is where we get the word hypocrite from. Hippocrates. A hypocrite is an actor. Now let me be clear. Long prayers are not being condemned in and of themselves. Right, Steve? <laughs> hey, for real, Pastor Stephen's prayers are a blessing, and I'm very grateful for them. He's helping us to learn what we should be praying for. It's a very good thank you, Stephen. But long prayers are not being condemned in and of themselves. Rather, rather, hear me, their prayers are long, not because they're speaking to God, and are immersed in that act and getting lost in that holy act, but their prayers are long because they want others to think that they're holy. They want to appear to be holy and great lovers of God, but it is an act. And hear me, please, this was a, a big insight for me into this text. If their prayers are an act... If their prayers are insincere and only a show, then all of their religious activity is a sham. Why would I say that? After all, prayer is the most intimate form of fellowship with and worship of God, isn't it? For you pour yourself out to the Lord and rely upon him and depend upon him and ask for his forgiveness, and ask for his mercy, and ask for his grace and strength. So if their prayers are false, if prayers are a pretense, then the whole of a man's religion is a lie as well. We should all take note of this ourselves. If the prayers are insincere, the entire religion is a sham. 
for all of their religious activity. And listen, they did more than anyone. Please don't misunderstand that. For all of their religious activity, they were liars and actors. All the Bible memorization and reading, the keeping of the ceremonial laws, the, sacri the sacrifices given at the temple, the tithing, the teaching, the religious counsel that they gave, it was an act. It was all done in order to be seen by others and praised by men. And in verse 40, Jesus tells us what the final end of these men will be. They will receive the greater condemnation. The text literally reads, abundant condemnation or abundant judgment. What does that teach us? <laughs> there's judgment and condemnation, and then there's this. Their judgment is not run-of-the-mill judgment. It's worse. The punishment is more severe. Jesus says God will judge them more severely. Their condemnation, hell, will be worse for them than for others. They will have, so to speak, a hotter hell than other people. And you ask me, how, how? How is hell going to be worse on one person than another? I don't know. I don't know. But I know that Jesus said it. And we receive the word of Christ as the word of God because that's what it is. We receive it because he said it and we believe it. Isn't that enough to terrify anyone who would be a religious hypocrite? The son of God says their condemnation is greater. And you say, I can't imagine how hell could be worse. And he says, trust me. God's wrath and judgment will be more severe on some than others. That's what Jesus is saying. And that made me ask the question. I like to ask questions when I read the Bible. Why? Why will the scribes receive a greater condemnation and punishment? Is it because they hurt people? I don't think that that's just it. Because there are plenty of people who do things and hurt people. But Jesus says these men will receive greater condemnation. So why? I think this is the reason. Because they were so exposed to the truth. Because they knew so much and it had no effect on them. Because you ready for the phrase that I hated to hear growing up? Because they played church. I hated that phrase because I did it. Because they pretended to have religion when they did not. Because they toyed with the things of God. Because they danced next to the fire that is God all their lives. And so in the judgment, they will be utterly consumed by the fiery wrath of God in a condemnation that is worse than others. Hear and be warned by the words of the Lord Jesus. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much will be required. What a warning that this is to elders and preachers in the church. What a warning this is to us. James 3.1 reads, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Those who teach are more exposed to the word. I don't think it's an arrogant thing for me to say I know the Bible better than most of you here. Maybe not all of you, but probably most of you. Those who teach are more exposed to the word. Those who teach know more. Those who teach are responsible to lead others to love and know the Lord because they themselves are to be leading the charge in knowing and loving the Lord. 
And having lived so closely to the truth of God, we will receive the stricter judgment. May God have mercy on us and help us. Pray for me. Pray for Stephen. Pray for Dave. May God grant us grace to take this seriously. This is not a game. This is serious. But not just to the elders and preachers in a church, but brothers and sisters of this congregation here this morning yourself. To paraphrase John MacArthur, every sermon you hear increases your responsibility. Every time you open your Bible, your responsibility is increased. Every religious book you read, every song you sing, every prayer you hear, every podcast you listen to, every lecture you listen to, every time you see and partake in the sacraments, every time you have a talk with your fellow Christian about the things of God, your responsibility has been increased. And we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to our being able to understand the Bible more than any other generation that's come before us. I listen to six sermons a week. I'm not saying that to try to sound pious to you. I do it as part of my sermon preparation. You could not do that in ages past. Someone who lives out in the middle of nowhere? No, you you got a sermon on the Lord's Day. Two, actually, because they met twice on Sunday. We're working on that here. (laughs) And you were blessed by it. And you you counted yourself blessed to have two sermons. We can listen to a sermon. We can listen to four sermons a day if we wanted to. We have an embarrassment of riches, and this increases our responsibility. You have study Bibles. How many copies of the Bible do you have? We have an embarrassment of riches. So in light of that, consider your responsibility and know that God is not to be toyed with. This is deadly serious stuff. The Anglican minister, J.C. Ryle, had something to say about those who pretend to be religious. By the way... If you find a book by J.C. Ryle, just buy it. It's good. He said, It is bad enough to be led away captive by open sin and to serve diverse lusts and pleasures. That's bad enough. But it is even worse to pretend to have a religion while in reality we serve the world. Let us beware of falling into this abominable sin. As I said earlier, Jesus speaks of the scribes in Matthew chapter 23. And it's a strong passage. And I I just want to read two verses from it now because I think they give us a good summary of what Jesus is condemning. Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Real quick, woe. That That is the strongest biblical form of a curse. You are cursed. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." I can't stress this enough. These men looked so good on the outside. They would put us to shame probably with how externally pious they were. They were so religious. Let me put this into our context today as a Reformed Baptist church. Buckle up, this hurts. They had the 1689 London Baptist Confession memorized cold. Their children were all catechized to the letter. They only listened to hymns from the 1700s, which is the greatest era for hymns. They were hardcore about the regulative principle of worship in the worship service. 
They gave to the church regularly. They were at every Bible study. They volunteered their time to the nursery and any other ministry. They were devoted Sabbatarians. They had John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion memorized. Above their fireplace was a picture of Charles Spurgeon, and not one image of Jesus was to be found in their house. It sounds good. Right? I, I want to be those things. These things are actually all commendable. But on the inside, there's nothing but filth. On the inside, there's nothing but hypocrisy. All of their religion was external. They kept up their religious act in order to be seen by others, and that's it. By external appearances, by the things that they said. And by the things that they did, the show that they put on, many would have looked at them and said, these men are models of righteousness and piety. But on the inside, there's nothing but filth and hypocrisy. It was an act. These men needed to be cleansed from the inside. As Jesus said, clean, clean the inside of the cup, that the outside might be clean also. They needed to be bathed in the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They needed to be washed clean of their sins and made new in Christ Jesus. But they refused to come to the only Savior who can cleanse sinners by his blood. And so they remained in their sins. I know I'm laboring the point, but I need all of us to see this or all is lost in everything that I've been doing. The religion of the scribes was a religion of self. I think that's maybe the best way to put it. Their doctrine was self. They used religion to further themselves. That was the extent of their religion. They used God as a means to an end. They had no true saving faith. They were lovers of self and lovers of the praise of men. That was their religion. So let me pose some questions to you now. Do you want others to think you're religious? Do you want others to think that you're holy? Or think that you're godly? Or think that you're a great lover of God? Or do you actually want to be those things? There's the question. And there's a world of difference between the two. One is concerned with the opinions and praise of men, and the other is concerned with faith and love for God. One is concerned about the glorification of the self, and the other is consumed with the glory of God. A great question for each one of us to ask ourselves is this. Why do I do the things that I do? That's a hard question. Why do I do the things that I do? Do I do them that I might receive recognition? Or do I do them for the glory of God? Let me give some examples. I really want to set this home in our hearts. These are things that I had to ask myself. First, with, with religious things, with, with work, acts of piety. Why do you study the Bible? God help me. So often I study scripture because I want to be the smartest man in a room of Christians. That's evil. That's wickedness. Why? Because I'm studying scripture so that I might be exalted? God help me. Why do you study scripture? Why do you teach? Why do you come to church? Why do you sing loudly? 
Why do you lift your hands in the assembly as you sing? Why do you read theology books? Why do you pray in public? Why did you join the church? Why do you give tithes and offerings? Why do you do the things that you do? Or let me ask you, uh, uh, let me give a few examples of things that we do for others. Why do you give money to the poor guy on the corner? Why do you help the elderly? Why, when you see your neighbor outside struggling with something, why do you help your literal neighbor? Why do you pray with other people? Why do you give counsel to other people? Why do you do ministry to a certain group? It's a brief aside. Often we, have you seen this? And it makes you want to throw your phone across the room. You see people post videos of themselves on the internet doing good deeds. That's the stupidest thing that I've ever seen. It's pride. Why are they posting this? So that people will say, oh, what a good person this guy is. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Then he says, these people have done this for the praise of men and they've received their reward. It's pride. It's self-exaltation. Why, why do you help people? Do you do it because you love your neighbor, because you see that they're made in the image of God? Or do you do it because you want people to see you, or even the person that you're helping? You want them to think you're a good person. Why did you give that, that person who's not well off in our church, why did you give him 50 bucks randomly? Is it because you love them and you want to help them, or because you want that person in the church to always think that you're a good person? Because they'll remember that you gave them money. Why do you do the things that you do? Ask yourself this hard question. Am I a glory thief? And know this, my dear brothers and sisters, God will not be fooled. God knows the truth. He knows the hearts of men. So the best thing that we can do right now is to be honest with ourselves and the Lord because all will be revealed on the last day. Please hear me. Don't fear men. You, you may fool, I may fool all others. You may fool your fellow church members. You may fool your pastors, even the world. But God knows whether or not you belong to him through faith in Christ. He knows the motives of our hearts. No one else may know, but God knows all. Again, J.C. Ryle offers some great insight here. He says, we cannot deceive an all-seeing God. We may take in, that is, we may deceive, we may take in a few poor, short-sighted men by a little talk and profession and a few cant phrases and an affectation of devoutness, but God is not mocked. He is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. His all-seeing eye pierces through the paint and varnish and tinsel which cover the unsound heart. The day of judgment will soon be here. The joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. His end will be shame and everlasting contempt. What a warning. Brothers and sisters, I... I think that all of us are hypocrites to one degree or another at some time or another. Now listen, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we are all just like the scribes in every single way. If that was the case, then none of us are Christians. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not saying we're all false converts and liars. But hear me. Don't be fooled. Each one of us has a little scribe living inside of us. Each one of us sometimes does things in order to be seen by others. 
Each one of us sometimes are insincere in our religious works or acts of mercy towards others. And Jesus hates it. He hates it. And he promises that such hypocrites will receive a harsh judgment. He hates it. But the good news for us this morning is that Jesus Christ died for hypocrites too. He died for hypocrites. Please hear now the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the very thing that he hates so much. And he he did so, suffering the wrath of God on behalf of hypocrites, as if he himself had been one, so that even the hypocrite can be made clean and forgiven of his sins. Jesus died for hypocrites so that they, through faith in him, might be washed clean of their sins, declared righteous in the eyes of God, and be turned into sincere lovers and worshipers of God. So that being justified in the blood of Christ, sinners would be made into true worshipers. And not only that, the good news goes further. Here's the good news, Christian. For those of you who have come to Christ in faith, Jesus has, by his grace, given us his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And the Spirit of God empowers us daily to put to death the little scribe that lives in us. We can overcome it. We can put to death our hypocrisy and pride by the grace of God. Is this not good news for hypocrites? This is good news for people who fall into hypocrisy. As we're going to sing later, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And he gives us further grace so that we may progressively put to death the deeds of the flesh. I know I've been up here now for about 49 minutes. And we're going to move into three portions of application now briefly. So let me say a few more things to you. Hold your attention here. First, Christian, cry out to the Lord. This sermon, I'm sure, has hurt each of us a little bit. And I can kind of tell that because there's not been half the movement that there normally is in here. You all have been listening. From the moment I said religious hypocrisy, you've been listening. This sermon has hurt each of us. So go to God and be honest with him. Go to God in prayer. God, I don't want to be that person. (laughs) But I know that I am that person sometimes. Help me. Forgive me. I repent. Save me from myself and my sins. Make me sincere. Purify my intentions. Purify my motives. I know they're not as pure as I always think that they are. I know that there's a scribe in me. Help me to kill it. And he will. He will. Isn't that the, the best part? He will. He will forgive you. And he will help you. How do I know that? Because that prayer is a true prayer made in faith to the God that you love. Perish the thought that he would let one of his children struggle and not receive grace in time of need. He will help you to kill that scribe, and he will keep forgiving you as you daily seek to put it to death. He will. Believe that. He will. Second, I want to say, if you, hearing this sermon, have realized that you have only been a religious hypocrite, I'm not talking about a Christian who struggles against the sin of hypocrisy, that if you're here and you've realized, I am just a hypocrite, come to Christ now. We don't do altar calls here because they're not biblical. Right now, repent and believe upon Christ now because there's mercy for you, you scribe. 
There's mercy for you. Jesus died for hypocrites. He suffered the condemnation that he spoke of in verse 40. And he did so for all who will believe in him. Turn to him in faith today. There's not a more comforting word that I can give to you. Jesus died for the sins that he hates in order to save those who have sinned so grievously against him. And not only did he die for those sins, but he himself was never a hypocrite. He was never false. He is perfect. And he promises to give you his perfect righteousness through faith so that in the judgment, you will be judged on his perfect hypocrisy-less life. Turn to Christ today. If you believe in him, if you believe on him, he will save you. And third, let me say this. I know we have some visitors among us. I don't know you. But maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm not a religious hypocrite. I'm not religious at all. Religious hypocrisy makes me sick. And that's why I've had nothing to do with religion. Hear me. You need cleansed too. You need the forgiveness of your sins. Hear me. I'll level with you. Hypocrisy might not be one of them. But you have your own sins. Be sure of that. And the weight of your sins will pull you down to hell the same as the sin of the hypocrite. Every, rather, the, the single sin of unbelief is enough to damn you, not to mention the mountains of other sins that you've committed. The Lord Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You have your own sins. Hypocrisy may not be one of them, but you have your own. But hear this. Today, Christ stands and calls to you, and he offers the free and full forgiveness of your sins if you will only believe on him. He lived, suffered the wrath of God on a cross, died and was raised on the third day in order to save sinners, and you need him more than you'll ever know. So in closing... May God grant us repentance where we need it. May God help us to heed this warning. And may God grant faith in Christ to each one of us today. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that pierces our hearts, that, that, that finds us out. Lord, your, your word says, be sure your sins will find you out. And they do whenever we open the book. They'll find us out on the judgment day. But God, they, they find us out as we turn to your word. And we thank you. We know that you love us. And your book says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend, someone who loves us, will wound us in order to help us. And so we thank you for the wounding that we have received this morning. But not only the wounding, but the balm of the gospel that stitches us back together and heals us in the blood of Christ. We thank you for him. God, we ask that you would help each of us to put to death the scribe in our heart. Help us to love you with greater sincerity. And God, for those who don't know you, if there are any among us, I pray that you would grant them faith in Christ. Show them their great need for him. Have mercy and glorify yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.